As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're going to get to the bottom of every fan base's favorite topic, is it time to panic? The U.S. women's national team lost their friendlies against England and Spain. They haven't looked like the dominant team we've come to expect. Here with me to break it all down, make sense of what's happening, is the Athletics' Steph Young. Steph, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I appreciate your more subdued approach to the introduction, which is maybe more reflective of the the mood around the U.S. women's national team right now. But let's start off happier. You got to go to England. The loss aside, how was the trip? It was fantastic. It was my very first time in England, London specifically. I mean, it's everyone is always like Wembley's an experience, and they were right. Is it? Um, on match day minus one, it was media, obviously, and then people were allowed to come down to pitch level to do B roll um, for photo and video, and us like normal just word print people also came along and we got to watch practice, which meant we got to be down on field level on the sidelines of the pitch at Wembley. Like couldn't go on the pitch, mm-hmm. but like could be down there, and it was like <gasps> I'm not even a player, and I could feel like odd in the moment so it was great was it just the the size the the i guess relative history what was it like for you that really kind of conveyed that moment it's kind of everything obviously it's a massive stadium and as you come out underneath this awning with like the three lions logo on it the stadium opens up all above and around you and then you're like oh we're in wembley and then of course the national team comes out and, and even though it's just practice and maybe you've been here a dozen times before it's always still like super cool so it's it's nice to have a reminder that actually we kind of have really cool jobs. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I imagine getting to go to London uh, to watch soccer is, is, is a tough one. It's like when uh, I tell my wife, like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of work tonight. I've got to watch three games. I say, I've said this before, but it's, it's not quite like coal mining, is it, when, it's, when you have to uh, no, watch soccer for a living? It's stressful, but, you know, if, if this is the kind of work stress I have to deal with, then that's 
highly preferable to other kinds of stress. Oh, true. Even within work, which is, I guess, why I'm on today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and up front, uh, with that in mind, I'd like to say that uh, I thought your Is It Time to Panic article uh, for The Athletic w- was was really excellent. Like, it genuinely... I, I was just like 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 shaking my head at times with how logical it was, how well written it was, how much it like it, it just it was it was a it was a great piece. So thank you for that. I'm going to be cribbing from it in this interview, <laughs> or at the very least, following your lead because I want to discuss this latest window. I want to discuss the USA's performances. I think to jump into a discussion of why did the U.S. lose two games without providing proper context is immediately unfair. So you were at uh, this game against England. Uh, I'm sure you have. Uh, like seeing the coverage of the game against Spain, you spoke with the players. Can you talk about the atmosphere in and around the team in the wake of the release of the Yates report? I'm not going to lie. It was extremely grim. That's kind of the word I keep coming back to whenever I talk about this. Very somber, obviously. You know, the players... I just kind of bring it back to Becky Sauerbrunn, who I think was the first national team player who did media after the Yates report came out. And she said straight up, the players are not doing well. Um, and I also want to mention something that Jasmine Spencer said from Angel City. They had a town hall a couple of days ago before recording this. And she was talking about how people keep coming to her and asking, like, what can we do? How can we help? And she's like, you need to remember that for a lot of players, they're reliving all of this all over again. They're being re-traumatized all over again, even though it's a necessary part of getting it all out into the light. When it happens, you know, the people who are hurt, they relive it all over again. And so they're also still processing. And this has been, you know, days since the games. So I think the mood was partially, um, you know, everyone was reeling a little bit and mm-hmm. honestly, partially being glad that they had a game to focus on so that there could be something else to think about. How much focus do you think there was on that game in training in the camp itself? Do you feel like it was sort of like when it's time to train, it's time to train? Or do you think there was also special attention paid to the news and the kind of emotional situation? I mean, I couldn't really say from what I saw of training. Mm -hmm. You know, I was only around for 15 minutes at the beginning when it was open to media for a couple of days. You know, it's training. They're focused on it. They're all professionals. Um, And, you know, some of the players had talked about how nothing was mandatory in this camp. So it it meant no training, no meeting. Even if they said, like, I don't feel like I can play, they would not have been required to play. But it's also a bunch of, like, peak 1% athlete brain Mm -hmm. competitors. So I'm sure a lot of them were like, I'm not going to take time off to you know but so what i saw you know was people who were focused on what they were doing sometimes you know even like joking or laughing with your teammates because you can't just be sitting there like feeling awful a hundred like a hundred percent of the time every second of every day they were people who were functioning who were going about their day and had to you know so just from my outside perspective only a glimpse it, it looked like mm-hmm. they were trying their best to carry on And did you get a sense of what the feeling is towards the Federation at president? Because Cindy Parlocone, now in charge, you would you would like to think that it's, you know, a new day. Things are going to change. But I'm sure these players have been told things are going to change many, many times and they haven't. So I'm wondering if you have a sense of how the players are feeling about the Federation or even how you are feeling. Well, actually, I take my cue. There was a panel in London where Cindy Parlocone and Becca Rue, who's the... um, Uh, who's the uh, executive director of the National Team Player Association, sat down together to talk about 
you know, how labor and unions kind of work together. It was a little bit more focused on that kind of labor management relationship. But I don't think that Becca Roo is sitting down with Cindy Parlo Cohn for like a friendly 20 minute panel where they talk about the process of working together if like the overall mood from the PA is frosty towards you know, the Federation. I mean, you know, it's different. Cindy Parlo Cohn is not the whole of U.S. soccer, but I do think there may be a sense that, you know, now if they have a concern, there is someone there who's going to be receptive to it and at least listen to what they have to say, once again, without totally knowing the inner workings, just taking my cue from, you know, what I observed. So... I don't like I want to keep all of that in mind when we talk about these games. I also think you d- you did a really nice job in your piece of sort of setting this table in terms of the status of the team itself and some of the injuries. Uh, I, I would love if you could do that again for our listeners, for people who ha- who didn't watch those games or haven't seen as much of the coverage. Sort of who was the U.S. missing heading into these friendlies and what were the kind of uh, looming questions about that squad before the game against England? Well, right off the bat, Mal Pugh was kind of a a late scratch. She had a family issue that meant she just couldn't come to the game at the last minute. Um, And then longer term, I think the three, maybe four big players that you're looking at who are out, Katerina Macario, Alex Morgan, Kristen Press, Tierna Davidson. These are all big, like starting caliber players um, who (laughs) have a proven track record of Mm -hmm. being, you know, big game players. So having Four of those people out, I I think it's a credit to our player pool that the team has been able to draw in, you know, other players and play to the same relatively high level, losses notwithstanding. So uh, we then get the two friendlies, two losses in a row, which is for the U.S. men's team, what they would call a standard international window. Uh, For the women, a slightly bigger deal. Can you explain why that's such a major thing to happen? Well, I think as everybody was very quick to note, this is the first time the national team has lost two games in a row since 2017, Mm -hmm. which is an absurd stat, right? Any other team being held to this standard, you would be like, wow, they did really well. They didn't lose two in a row for like five years, five plus, because I think that double loss was in She Believes, which is January tournament or January, February, early in the year. So like for five plus years, they if they ever lost a game, they bounced back and like got a result the next game, at least if not outright winning for five years. Um, and within that five years, there were also major tournaments, right? Like a World Cup, for example. <laughs> So, yes, I see that. Um, I, I see that, like, there is some cause for concern because mm. I'm not going to say that they went out there and they did their best and they lost anyway. I don't think these performances were their best by any means. But I am trying to be like, people need to accept that there's an ebb and a flow to every team. Mm-hmm. And I think you really laid it uh, out well in your piece. Here is my summary, and then I welcome your uh, corrections. Uh, Essentially, the U.S. historically has been able to power through an opponent when things aren't working. They have had the the individual ability or the team ability to get the result. So in a moment when their heads were understandably turned and they had some of the injury issues we've talked about, the truth about some of the deficiencies in the tactics and the approach were laid bare. Is that more or less the thesis that you were working with? I think that's a fair reading of what I wrote, that, yeah, a lot of times something carries them through some moment of individual brilliance or just their fitness to gut it out. Something helps them get through. And then this time, 
you know, the reservoir was empty to start. So when they were reaching for it, when they were in trouble, they didn't really have it. So what what would be some of like the the chief reasons coming out of that game that you spotted, or the things that you saw that really became a concern for you? Because one thing for me watching it, it's felt like the United States has long been able to just put eight attackers <laughs> on the pitch <laughs> at one time and and just sort of roll the dice on finding a way to win through that just sheer ability. But maybe we found like why the like on the men's side the Brazil national team doesn't do that because they can easily be countered and uh, opened up. And it seems like maybe that was part of what went wrong here against England. Yeah, against England, I thought we saw that uh, in that midfield area in particular with the way that Serena Wiegmann had set up England, their midfield was able to really take advantage of some of the larger gaps that were left around, you know, Andy Sullivan and the central, the center backs, um, which I don't necessarily count as being Andy Sullivan's fault, but just that in that four three three formation, when they're like you said, they're asking a lot of players to go forward. Sometimes they're even borrowing a fullback in order to add numbers up. If Lindsey Horan and Rose Lavelle or whoever else is around, Annie Sullivan is up. It's a lot of space for her to cover on her own, regardless of what her relationship is with the center backs. Um, and in the past, sometimes that area has been covered just because Julie Ertz is like an inhuman level. <laughs> like machine who can crank out a lot of coverage, but she did it by, I it, honestly, it really seemed to me she did it by essentially emptying the tank all the time, no matter what. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen Julia Ertz really step back in because between the national team, and the Chicago red stars, she just drained herself completely giving it all in order to be that, you know, monster in the midfield. And you're now you have Andy Sullivan primarily in that role. Or maybe you're looking at a Jalen Howell or Sam Coffey or whatever. These people are not Julie Ertz, and it's not fair to ask them to be Julie Ertz. So there needs to be some adjustment here in order to really maximize their capabilities. You mentioned the four three three there. You mentioned the issue with Julie Ertz. Is there a lineup or a formation or approach that you personally think would be the best combination? And to be clear, I'm not asking a what is Vlatko getting wrong, but more of a <laughs> like there seem like there's a bunch of issues. Is there an approach you think that alleviates the largest number of those issues? I mean, I think a lot of people have said four two three one, right? If your problem is that Andy Sullivan needs help in her coverage, then putting another player in that area seems like a very obvious answer. And I don't want to act like I have some comparable level of coaching ability or knowledge to like a national team level coach. But it's like, okay, maybe having extra coverage there would help someone who's more responsible for sitting deeper and then someone else who, you know, can go forward more, right? Some kind of double pivot situation, maybe. Who knows? I think... You know, since we're looking at the article, I think I did also mention, like, you have to be aware that this is all happening without someone like Katarina Macario. I don't know how many times I can repeat it, but Vlako Ananoski has repeatedly said she's a first-choice player. Mm-hmm. When she's back, if she's fit in any way, he knows he has to make some kind of plan around her. She's too good to leave off the field. So if Katarina Macario is in play, I think everything shifts around her, which, you know, fair. She's good. Yeah, would she be then if you went with a four two three one? Would she be the the number ten in that uh, kind of attacking three? Probably, yeah, ten, some kind of central attacking mid, something like that. Yeah. And is that where she would be as well? Like one of the central attacking mids in the Vlatko four three three? 
I think so, yeah. If I was looking at that, the problem is, if he's got Macario in, I think he still wants to start Haran and Lavelle. And, and that means if he's telling Macario to go forward, who's going to hang back? It's probably Haran. And she's maybe not had a ton of success when she's asked to be in more of a DM, like, deeper-lying role. She's better when you can get her to shuttle a ball back and forth and, and get higher on the field. So if you have Macario in, then you see that because she's so useful in the attack, you want to surround her with players in the attack, you also have to look at how you're going to backstop the space behind her. Do you feel like that uh, that sort of holding midfield spot is maybe critical to unlocking the rest of this team? Because I think you're dead on that Julia Ertz did so much, it allowed the team to kind of function in a more like free-flowing or attacking way, not trying to do a disservice to what the, those players accomplished themselves, but just that if you have that defensive cover you have that defensive cover. Now that they don't, it seems like solving that one would maybe allow the team to get more of the kind of normal form we've come to expect. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe, you know, the project is getting more of his midfielders to be two-way players, like Mm -hmm. being able to work more on the defensive side of the ball. I think that's an evolution we've seen from a player like Rose Lavelle, where she's also able to work on the defensive side of the transition. And it's something that you need more from other players. For example, um, Ashley Sanchez. I mean, uh, yeah, for example, Ashley Sanchez from the Washington Spirit, who has been typically used now as a substitute more than a starter, I think, to come in and, and change the game because she's such a creative attacking player. She's also not necessarily afraid to take a shot on her own. I think she's exactly what you want in the last 30 minutes of a game. But her work on the defensive side of the ball maybe means there's like a liability in that space if they lose the ball and they can't get it back quickly. Much more still to come from my conversation with Steph Young of The Athletic, but first, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you to all of our friends for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Steph. So we've, we've talked a decent amount about the midfield. We can come back to that if you want. But also a number of other issues with, with the lineup or just like positional depth. Let's go, uh, let's go back first. If we're playing a back four, it seems like Naomi, Naomi Gurma is starting for sure. And then there's maybe some question marks around the other three spots, especially with some of the injuries. Who would you like to see in that back four alongside Gurma? It's clear that Alana Cook is kind of being trained up to be that starting pairing with her, especially with Tierna Davidson out. And Abby Dahlkemper has some kind of injury that is also kind of keeping her out, um, like we saw that with the San Diego Wave. But, you, you know, with those two out and Becky Sauerbrunn kind of 
it's it's so sad to say, but like it's the reality of it where she's kind of slowing down a little bit. You're seeing Alana Cook being asked to step up into that role. She's uh, this really tall, thoughtful, calm center back. But I worry about Alana Cook because I think she's developing yeah. this kind of like worrying tendency to make one big oops per game. Yeah. And um, I think I said in the column, it's not like normal defensive mistakes. Every player is going to make some kind of normal mistake during game. But it's like a... A, a critical oversight where she'll lose track of some player or it'll be some risky play where like she hasn't really judged the risk correctly and i'm like the rest of the time you're just steady so what's happening here in this like one moment which feels more like a mental calculation mm-hmm. right as opposed to any kind of issue with her talent so i think she's like crazy talented she's good she just maybe needs to have a talk about evaluating some of that like risk assessment or something like that yeah it's really strange it 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 looks to an outsider like that like oh don't mess up don't mess up like there's that fear that fear of the pressure of the moment leading to you to saying don't mess up and in my mind when you're saying like i hope i make this pass you're basically saying i might mess this pass up and you're right it it like it becomes a concern because maybe in friendlies you can make up for it. Maybe against weaker opposition, it's less of an issue. I have to believe France or England uh, more than capable of taking advantage of that type of defensive mistake. Yes, absolutely. And then you we look at the fullbacks. I think it's also clear Emily Fox is someone who's being asked to kind of take a starting role. And she's definitely, we talked earlier about maybe borrowing a fullback to add numbers up. And she's absolutely capable of doing that emily flock emily fox is a player who can start like fully in the left back in the defensive third and make a huge diagonal run all the way to the other end of the field to like put in a cross or be available on the far post on the right like she's that player who can cover that kind of territory especially in a fast transition and then is still you know able to work defensively if we're talking other fullback, we got to remember Crystal Dunn just came back. Mm-hmm. That could be super important for us going forward. And then there's actually some decent options going on here with like Sofia Huerta, Kelly O'Hara is eventually working her way back to fitness. Maybe even an, an Emily Sonnet. I don't know. And then Carson Pickett <laughs> is maybe someone else you can look at who's like nibbling around the edges. Is is that a is that a controversial name to say amongst uh, the U.S. fan base, Emily Sonnet? Yes, but it's yeah. just because I think people have strong opinions about center back, full back, or sometimes even moving up into like defensive mid. She did have, I, I feel like she's always been a player who I have like some concern about, but she seems to be such a good, like likable person and, and strong locker room presence, plus William, William and Mary graduate, so Virginia uh, connection there. But I think, that, I forget what game it was recently where she kind of came in and looked like I look when I play hungover and had a, a pretty... <laughs> A pretty poor game. I'm sure that's a, f- a fair analogy that she will love. Yeah, I'm sure. And <laughs> oh, and then the last name I do want to mention is like Haley Mace, who you know is is playing, uh, I believe, left back for the national team. But when she's playing for her club team, most recently they had uh, like a, a kind of a, a three-five-two going on, and she was in a more of a like a left winger sort of role. And so she's definitely capable of once again borrowing that deeper lying defender to like pump that the numbers up so some questions about the defense and who should be uh starting her in the conversation fewer questions about uh in goal uh i'm assuming our number one remains the number one yes Alyssa Nair yep. is clearly the number one pick for a goalkeeper but honestly i think Alyssa Nair maybe the performance is starting to drop off a little bit which 
it's it's human for people to ebb and flow. Like I said before, ebb and flow. People aren't always at their peak 100% of the time, but that does mean it's crucial to have like a strong number two behind her. And that's where I have some questions where I'm not sure why it seems that number two is looking like Casey Murphy when I think there have been other keepers in the national team pool and NWSL who have maybe had stronger performances. So maybe there's something else going on there where like, obviously we're not privy to practice. So sometimes like meshing with the defense or the locker room or something is, is an additional factor that we don't get to see beyond on-field performance. Is AD French the, the main name that you think of as should be involved in the number two conversation? Yes, I think that's the the main name. You look at her performance with Kansas City where she's capable of being like super steady with her back line but also can be a really big moment shot stopper and I'm like, yeah, seems like she should be in there. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine with her in there. She she does yeah, I don't know. I've, I always enjoy her performances, especially what I've seen from her with Kansas City this season. You want like just stability. Stability is what you want to go, and I guess that is what Nair has always been. I've asked you this before. I'm sure I have a goldfish brain. I apologize. What is the thing that makes Nair so undisputably the number one? Because it is always fascinating to me when I read the conversations about the national team, how it's always who should be the number two, and it's almost just never even discussed as, like, should somebody supplant her? It's always Nair, and then who should be underneath her. So what is it that makes her just so top of the table? What I've liked about Nair throughout her career is that she's, like I said with France, she's that combo of very steady. Mm -hmm. She can be a big shot stopper. I remember in 2019 in France, you know, when she wasn't so cemented as number one, she was a lot more fresh in the position. Media kept asking her teammates, like, do you trust Alyssa Nair? Do you trust Alyssa Nair? And they would all uniformly roll their eyes. And then we saw in 2019, she had some huge, like, heroic level stops. And her teammates were like, we've known she's capable of this the whole time. Like, have you seen her? So why are you asking these questions? Like, stop asking if we trust Alyssa Nair. We trust her. And... Yeah, she's capable of big game stops. She's pretty steady. I think she's pretty good in terms of like getting set up with her positioning. I'm not the greatest judge of like goalkeepers and like how they set their feet and stuff like that. But it seems like she, my measure of a goalkeeper a lot of times is like how many easy catches do they make during a game? Because an easy catch doesn't show everything that led up to the easy catch, which was them reading the game state, understanding like the shape of the attack and who's attacking them and putting themselves in position to make the catch. All the work is the little iceberg underneath the water. And then the little tip you see above is the easy catch that they make. And that's something I also like about Adie French. She's calm. She's not making these big theatrical, like sweeping saves all whatever all the time. If you see a goalkeeper doing that a lot, to me, it's actually an indication of an inefficient goalkeeper. Who are the other players in the squad or on the periphery of the squad that you just tend to really enjoy, that you think bring something special to the team? Like locker room vibes? No, I mean, I just, I, I'm interested, like you saying you're not like an expert in the goalkeeper getting uh, their feet set or something like that. It, it, it immediately made me wonder, like, how you watch games, who you tend to, like, keep an eye on who you, just on a more consistent basis, think like, oh, thank goodness we have that person in the team. Oh, she's so good. 
I know all this talk about like feet setting and making unassuming catches makes me sound like someone who looks for boring, fuddy-duddy stuff. But I love <laughs> watching Rose Lavelle because she can be so flashy on the ball. She looks so comfortable with the ball attached to her foot. She'll do some casual like turn with the ball that just leaves her with three yards on a defender in about half a second. And I'm just like, that's why I watch soccer. So if we did, though, then, see, it's just, this is why Vlatko's job is so difficult. Because going back to that midfield, if it's a four-two-three-one and you have Katarina Macario as that central midfielder, I doubt Rose Lavelle is going to be the other one alongside Andy Sullivan in the four-three-three. Like, you have so many attacking yeah. options there. Maybe, I think you, you talked about this a little bit, that maybe somebody gets pushed out wide, but that feels like Mal Pugh and Sophia Smith's territory, provided they're both healthy. Is that also accurate? Yes, because okay. they are clearly your first choice, like seven eleven winger duo, especially Sophia Smith, who has been bawling out. My one thing here is like Sophia Smith can also play the nine, mm. so maybe there's room here to shift her centrally. But there's also other nine-ish players who you want to consider. Um, maybe Alex Morgan, although I think she does better when she's coming in, f- approaching the goal from the left. She has that left-footed shot. Um, you don't maybe necessarily want her totally central, although that could be a very powerful tool to push against some center backs. But you're right that a four two three one asks you then to be, especially around Macario, it's like, okay, where does that leave some of these other players? Does that, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know. That's why I'm not the coach. Yeah, and I think you you also like made that point. Not the I'm not the coach thing, but just the challenges of taking over the U.S. women's national team. And uh, your concluding question, I think, was something along the lines of, the real question is, if Andonovsky isn't getting it exactly right now, I'm quoting you directly, is he getting it wrong enough to try risk, uh, to risk trying to find a new head coach within a World Cup year? And that is the key thing. Even if it's not clicking, to bring somebody else in, they have to figure all this out themselves, and there are no real easy answers across the board. So it does seem like it's worth sticking with Vlatko Antonovsky as the manager, at least through this cycle, to see how he can kind of get the team playing when he gets everybody healthy. When it's a World Cup and that kind of title is on the line, then we'll see like, truly what this team is made of. I think so. Like, name a, a U.S. caliber level coach that you think U.S. soccer could tempt away, you know, on a yeah. month's notice to be in place for the World Cup for like maybe an uncertain contract offer because U.S. soccer, if they're searching for a coach in an emergency, is not necessarily going to be like, here's a three-year contract offer. They're going to be like, yeah. you get us through the World Cup, you win it, and then we'll see if you get to keep the job. Like, who, who's going to, like, first of all, who's good yeah. enough, and then yeah. who do they make that offer to? So, yeah. I mean, the only, the only one that I've, like, seen people talk about it is Serena Wiegmann and I can't imagine they're going to tempt her away from England at this point with them being the reigning European champions I, I have to assume she wants to see what she can get out of them in a World Cup I also think it would require a huge uh, amount of money uh, both for her contract and to get her out of her contract with England so and I don't even know if there's interest from her because she's been in Europe so maybe that's the only high profile name that comes to mind but even there there's just so many obstacles to making that happen whereas it's not like we're talking about a manager who the players have quit on who has no idea what he's doing I think these are always sort of, in my mind at least, there are always issues with the U.S. national team manager of why are they playing this person here, this person should be here, because there's just so much talent. It really is, to me, a thankless job. And Vlatko hasn't always helped himself, but I still <laughs> think he is a, a very strong manager doing about the best he can be. 
I once again take my cue from the players, which mm-hmm. was when Megan Rapino came out to talk to the press. I think this was match day minus one. She repeatedly was like, Vlatko's been good with us and helping us handle all the Yates fallout stuff. And I'm like, that's almost something I want to look at that has at least equal, if not more importance yep. than the tactical side, yep. where it's like, <laughs> is he just being like a decent person about one of the roughest times that players are having mentally and emotionally? So if the players are sitting there telling us, like, yeah, he's being cool about all this and he's helping us get through it, then I'm like, okay, they're they're having a tough time out in the field, but do you really want to roll the dice on a manager search? This new guy comes in, or new girl comes in, whoever, um, mm-hmm. and maybe helps them win more, but isn't, like, as good of a, a locker room presence for the players? It feels like such a risk. Yeah, especially with things as they are. Uh, you and I talked about this before we started recording because I, I, I wasn't sure like about Vlatko. I think that's what the whole situation and the Yates report has made me feel a little bit is like I, I, I hope everyone is who they appear to be. Uh, and, and you made me feel a little bit better with the what one mentioned to Vlatko in a 130 plus page document. 173 pages, including yeah references, where I think the one reference was that they noted that he didn't really know anything about, I believe it was the Christy Holly hiring, but he advised, like, he was clearly let go for a reason. So I advise you look into that. And I do want to add the caveat, like, if somebody made a complaint against Black Oinos, any coach, I would, mm-hmm. like, I believe players. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, he has this unimpeachable reputation. Yeah. But I don't think you can go through life being, like, everyone is guilty until proven innocent. You just can't function in this job or in life that way. So I'm fully prepared to believe when someone brings like some kind of credible allegations, like this is my experience, I need to come forward and say it and be like, yeah, I think we should believe women. We should believe players when they tell us about these things. It's just that we don't have anyone telling us that yet. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, you know, think, yeah, yeah you just gotta, you just I, gotta keep functioning. I, in my mind, we have to keep functioning until Becky Sauerbrunn has enough coaching experience to take over the U.S. women's national team. Am I the only one that feels like that's definitely going to happen? I feel like she would be an excellent national team coach, both from her playing career but also from like the, the leadership side of things. Again, very much an outsider, but she seems like she would be uh, at least like a, a candidate in my mind at some point. Sure. I would love to see that. I would love to see almost any player you know, come through the ranks because it's – it's such it's been such an inaccessible system for so long even to players so getting to see a players benefiting from the hard work they put in to like make the program a success and a destination and then like continue on and help the next generation i think that would be really cool i don't know if like sarah wants to do that she might instead be like <laughs> running the country <laughs> instead something like that or she could just be retired with like 10 cats who knows <laughs> Who knows? Uh, I I, want to ask you about the Spain game as well. Mostly just to ask, of the two, which one did you find more disconcerting as a supporter of this team? Which one did you find more of a head-scratcher? Probably Spain, just Mm -hmm. because this is a team that has shown us through evidence, history, that they, they tend to bounce back. So even if they suffer a loss the next game, there's this mental attitude of like, you know, we're going to come back. We got to get a result here. Let's do it. And they still looked kind of, mm-hmm. I don't want to say tired or something, but, you know, just like that sharpness wasn't there. That bite wasn't there. I think I mentioned that, like, this is a team that is technically 
tactically gifted, but like maybe they've been lacking some attitude recently, just some of that like meanness. I do. I also feel like from my amateur career that if you know the other team is missing their five or six best players, it's easy to start that game with your foot off the gas. That has never been the hallmark of, of this U.S. women's team or the U.S. women's team ever. But watching that game, it did feel a little bit like, come on, you guys don't have your best players. You know you're not going to win this game. And then that is exactly what Spain did. Yeah, I actually didn't really love that whole discussion around like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. Spain's B team. We should be beating them handily where it's like, okay, first of all, I think that discounts some of the level of talent in the pool in Spain. Um, Yeah, maybe not all these players are regularly national team players, but a lot of them coming from like Real Madrid and stuff. And the other thing being, okay, even if they are the quote unquote B team, like (laughs) the, the talent... In, yeah. in the world generally has come up where it's like, okay, Spain, like, if we had a USA B team, right, we would still expect them to be heavily competitive internationally. So I don't see why the same isn't being applied to Spain, which is a country that has, like, made some pretty good strides recently in developing the talent from the youth level up uh, on their women's side. Sticking with that for a moment, and apologies for jumping around quite a little bit here, but uh, we just did a Soccer 101 episode about the the Women's Champions League, which is starting, uh, and sort of the history of it. Ryan asked me if I like considered it to be, or if I agreed that it was the the premier women's club competition in the world, and basically the idea was it's that or the NWSL. I, I lean towards yes, it is, and will increasingly become so. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that one. So we're talking Champions League versus NWSL? Yeah, we're talking all of the leagues of Europe versus one league, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an interesting question, given yeah. that we have like a couple of international tournaments here in the U.S. between ICC and I think the Women's mm-hmm. Cup, where they do invite some premier European-level teams to NWSL to compete. So we have some level of comparison going on here. Admittedly, when some of these teams are invited over, it'll be like, They'll be at different points in their respective Mm -hmm. seasons, so it's not quite a one-to-one comparison. Maybe they're pretty comparable. I would put almost any NWSL team against almost any Champions League team, though, like regardless of where they are on the NWSL table, just because... This is such a cliche, but every single Euro player who comes here, they're asked about, like, what's it like? And they're like, you guys are crazy. Everybody here runs so much. This is such a transitional league. Like, the fitness is wild here. You hear about Americans being fit, but until you get here, you don't have a clue what fitness, like, the the fitness regimens here are chef kiss, right? Really? So, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think I knew that. So, um... Yeah. I I think I knew that that was, like, an, an American thing... That like I, I know like like Klinsman talked about that about like bringing over American physios because U.S. players tended to be so fit. I didn't realize that that worked both ways. I just assumed that like I don't know European clubs had had become the ones who had to work super hard to catch up. I didn't know that was still the hallmark of the United States. That makes me strangely happy and proud. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we might not uh, have the technical sophistication there yet, but we'll yeah. run circles around yeah, you. So. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, that's good to know. Uh, so, like, turning back to, to these results and the idea, like, of whether or not it's time to panic, it felt like your conclusion was, like, you can panic if you want to, but it might not be the time to do that yet. Uh, and even if you are panicking, no one else is coming in to save this team, so why not get on board is my, then, uh, spin on that one. But if we're kind of breaking down 
some of the factors here, I think the release of the Yates report and the timing of it in relation to these friendlies can't be overlooked. We've also talked a lot about injuries and players not being at full fitness, and, and I'm assuming that certainly there will be players injured heading into the World Cup, but broadly speaking, I think some of those players coming back makes just that sizable difference to the squad, to the chemistry, what have you. And then there are those individual things, like Julie Ertz and how you can't really just replace her out and out. Are there other things you think like you 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 look at as being factors as to like that were part of these losses but also maybe areas of concern or areas for improvement heading into the World Cup. I feel like that pretty much covers it. I mean, you look at where a lot of these players were and some of them had, you know, end of cell playoffs still mm-hmm. to go, but I actually thought Andonovsky did a decent job of kind of like cycling his roster so that people who had important like quarterfinal playoff games coming up, for example, Naomi Girma, uh, didn't play like in a game immediately before having to do an international flight. She didn't play at all uh, in that game against Spain. And then obviously her team, the Wave, advanced. So I think that was probably, you know, some small percentage of what was going on there. So yeah, I think that pretty much is a holistic look at, at what was going on. Once again, with the caveat, we don't get to see inside camp. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's the iceberg thing where we see just this like little 10% above the top we get 15 minutes of training we get some press conferences we get sound bites from players and we were very you know fortunate and privileged that they were willing to do the labor of saying stuff like Becky Sauerbrunn and um Alana Cook having a press conference to like put it out there that the players are not doing well and that they're all really struggling and like that's not stuff that we're automatically entitled to that's mm-hmm. that's private mental health stuff that they're willing to share with us so you know, normally we get 10%, this time maybe we got 20 but we still don't get to see the vast majority of what goes on in the locker room. No, that's a very, that's a very good point. And I think the other thing that is maybe worth remembering, there's a very good chance that, it, like, these could be the, like, the harbingers of more negative performances and a bad World Cup. Uh, but as you yourself pointed out in that article, what, was, what happened after the U.S. last lost those two games in 2017? <laughs> They had a pretty good 2019. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So so it feels like maybe like these can be motivators for them. This can be a thing that bonds the team, gets them sort of really to see that there are problems and then figure them out. Or it can be they continue to kind of struggle. And I think either way, we will know as we get closer to the World Cup because we still have uh, time for friendlies. What would you like to see between now and the start of the Women's World Cup, aside from the U.S. winning every single game 5-0? I would love to see players get healthy because we keep talking about the theoretical, Mm -hmm. right? Like what happens if these players come back? And so I want to see the players healthy. And then back in with the team, because then that's really going to be our canary in the coal mine, right? If these players are back getting minutes to the team and the team still looks weird, then you're like, what's going on in the rest of the iceberg? Something else is happening. Like, okay, then you can panic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, We'll wait for you to give us like to to, light the beacon that tells us it's time to panic. But for now, I'm feeling reassured, which is not a thing I expected to feel after after those two games. So, Steph, thank you for that. Thank you for being on the show and thank you for uh, all that you do. Your work has been uh, incredible of late and I really appreciate you and Meg uh, letting us uh, hijack your show uh, to put into our feed. Sure. Uh, Gondor lights the beacon and Rohan <laughs> responds, right? <laughs> That's just a perfect outro. I'm not going to say anything else other than thank you again. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
All right. Thank you once again to Steph Young of The Athletic for taking all that time to talk about some not fun and then some kind of fun uh, topics with me today. It's always really nice to talk to Steph. She has a ridiculous amount of knowledge, so it's great to, to pick her brain and feel a little bit better about the U.S. women's national team, who I haven't been feeling the best about. A team that I have been feeling pretty happy about is the Richmond Kickers. They wrapped up uh, top spot in USL League One in the regular season with the playoffs starting. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Elliot Barr of River City 93. Uh, Elliot is a, is a friend of mine who's a kicker supporter. He does a podcast about them. He was on the pitch for the celebrations. Uh, he's done a lot of work for the kickers in the Richmond community. So I was excited to basically just get to talk about the kickers with him for a good 30 minutes. Hopefully you all enjoy that one, even if you are not Richmond kickers fans. Joining me now here on the Total Soccer Show, I'm very excited uh, to talk the Richmond Kickers, who just finished top of USL League One in the regular season, is my friend and yours, Mr. Elliot Barr. He's the host, or co-host, excuse me, of River City 93, a kicker's <laughs> podcast. He's got Can I Kick It? He's got Walking 90. Are you starting your own podcast, Empire, Elliot? Is that what's going on? I feel like a low-key arrow. Like, I'm like the very early version of like Pokemon where there's like Professor Oak is like, oh, hey, do you want to choose between Charmander, Bulbasaur, or Squirtle? And I'm the kid that chooses Squirtle. And then I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm about to fill out this Pokedex. So Loki, <laughs> that's what I'm doing now. That is certainly the fastest anyone has ever gone straight to Pokemon. I'm not sure we've ever had a Pokemon reference on the show before. So that's a, that's a twofer for you right there, my friend. Congratulations. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, I initially, so we talked about this, uh, about you coming on to talk about the kickers. I initially thought it would be uh, like, you know, like a League One season recap, a playoff preview. It's not going to be that. I'm telling listeners right no. now, it's mostly just going to be <laughs> Richmond Kickers, and that's what we're going to focus on. If you don't want to hear about our, our local uh, USL League One team, that is fine. But that's what we're going to talk about, because Elliot, they won the regular season, and that has not been the case uh, very often, very lately. Uh, where no, does this experience been. rank? You were there celebrating. Uh, you were on the pitch Ooh. giving out awards. Where does it rank in your experience as a kicker supporter? Top scoring team first place they got the golden boot winner you were on the pitch celebrating as i said you did also propose to your wife on that pitch previously so like <laughs> tread carefully when you talk about where this was for you oh man this is probably oh man actually i'll put it as the third best experience i've ever had at city stadium really i put this third i put this third number one of course is you know when i got married to my lovely wife who's mm. probably listening to this hi Alexa, love you uh, <laughs> I like number this. two i would say is when um the late david bulow mm. uh won what was it his last game there it was also the night that like Braden Troy retired yeah and everything like that and it was just a real cool night because lo and behold like bulow would be let go of his job and you know, Darius Watson would come in. But that night itself was such a hard season. Because, you know, you recorded that year as well. Yep. We actually started River City 93. Mm -hmm. But it was like, it was kind of just like everybody was just coming together. It's just like, yo, we made it. Like, <laughs> we survived. Everything we, <laughs> right, we survived. Yeah. Like, everything we've been through, like, given what 2018 was like, what 2017 was like, hearing all the talks, like, oh, is the club about to close? Like, is Richard about to shut down forever? Are we going down to League One? You know, how's this team going to look? And then the seven-game losing streak where we didn't mm. score any goals. Yeah, man. I forever <laughs> – I will – like, whenever people ask about, like, what was it like doing those broadcasts, I just point to that when I think that month they were doing – it was like uh, they were donating to like the food bank, I think, and it was like for every goal they score, they're giving some amount of money, and then they did not score a goal that month, so they had to do, I think, every number of saves. Uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Matt yeah, Turner or Kier Fitzgerald. It was, Fitzgerald was Pride yeah. Razor. Yeah. It was Pride Razor. We were like, 
Oh man, yeah, you're really not helping out this foundation at all. Nope. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's low key the reason why we haven't gone back yet because we're like very scared about that because they're like, ah, I don't know if I can go through that again. Um, but yeah, and then number three, of course, is winning the title, regular yeah. season title in City Stadium. I'd be great if we won it before against for Madison, but winning it, like celebrating it in City Stadium. Man, it it was amazing. It was dope because I've never experienced that in like fandom. Because you know, like we all grow up supporting teams that definitely here in Virginia that we're nowhere near close by. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, I really can't celebrate. So I can celebrate over the TV, but I, you know, being in person for it, being with the team, game in, game out, and it's just like, man, like this is what it feels like. like this is amazing. How, <laughs> how many? I'm assuming you were at. Every game or most home games, unless you're like out of town. Did you go on the road as well this season? Uh, actually, I did. I've only missed one home game this year, and that was the Charlotte uh, FC USL. You, I mean, US Open Cup game. Um, but I've been. Let's see. I've been to Charlotte this year. I've been to Raleigh. Um, next year, I'm planning on going to Madison or Greenville. So okay. yeah, I, I'm pretty traversed in in USL League One away days. If you go to Madison, I'm, I might have to go with you because they came down here. That was an amazing time when they came down here uh, for – was that the first Henny Derby or one of the first? That was year one at Henny Derby, but that was the um, – that was like the last game of that season in which they brought like the entire flock in, which, by the way, fans, listeners, if you haven't heard about the Henny Derby, which by this point you should, mm-hmm. go look it up. On YouTube, it is the best Darby. Man, I forget. It really is. I forget that people like it's not just like a household thing. So multiple times I've talked to people and been like, "Yeah, it's Henny Derby night. You got to go to that game." And they're like, "Yeah, the Henny Derby." Like thinking it's one word, and then I realize that it's not quite that household name yet, but it will be. It will be. Yes, yes, it is. And the crazy thing is about it. Like I've had people like Alexis hit me up um, from the Cooligans and be like, "Yo, who?" Like, if we come down for the Henny Derby, like, what's there to do in Richmond? I'm like, first of all, why are you DMing me? Yep. <laughs> if we starstruck, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, if you come to Richmond, this is bad to do. Um, but, yeah, I've never experienced it in Madison. I think it would be a cool thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I think Alexis's experience and Christian as well, their experience in Richmond was the monuments were still up, so they were very confused by that. And I think Alexis, the first <laughs> thing he asked me was like, so does everyone have a gun? Is that how it works? And I was like, no, but... <laughs> Kinda, I guess. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we'll get them, uh, back in Richmond anytime soon, but maybe, for, maybe for the playoffs, uh, we should talk about that a little bit more. I want to talk more about the regular season though first. Mm-hmm. Was there a game for you that you felt like, okay, like this could be something special. Things might be moving in that direction. Oh man. Oh, um, there's actually two moments. Um, the three, I think it was three one, three one against Chattanooga at home because, mm-hmm. We have notoriously struggled against Chattanooga, definitely on the road. Chattanooga is just a very tough place in the way how their tactics set up against Richmond. It just bogs everything Richmond trying to do now. So to win that game 3-1 was like, oh, like I've never seen us dominate. Like granted, we've had score lines where we scored three, four goals, but we never looked as dominant in the midfield as we did in that game. So I was like, oh, okay, this is new. And then the... Four one, I mean four nothing against Charlotte. That game, everything Richard did just looked like butter. Like it looked smooth, it looked good, and I was just like, 
I, I'm not worried about this team making the playoffs. <laughs> like, I'm not stressing out like how I did last year. I'm like, I need this, this, this to happen for us to get into the playoffs. Like, I felt good. Um, I felt good about it. And then I think the moment where I realized, like, we have a legit chance of winning the title was later this season where we won 3-1 against Tormenta. And we came back and scored three goals, I think, in the second half against a Tormenta team that might be the hottest team going into the USL League 1 playoffs. And I was just sitting there, I was just, I looked at uh, Shanir, my, my co-host, and I was like, oh, this team gets to the playoffs. It has to play at home. We got a legit chance of winning the title. <laughs> Man, um, <laughs> thank you for mentioning Shanir. I, I I love him. I love you both, obviously. But And, and Matt Myers, your other co-host on River City 93. Matt, I've known <laughs> since high school. Uh, Shanir, I love because you are always down with the Red Army, or most often I'll see you with the Red Army. Sometimes I'll see you on the concourse. But Shanir, usually up above the Red Army, usually with at least one child strapped to him, uh, and then one, <laughs> and his uh, his older, kind of running around as as my daughter tends to do. But I appreciate the dedication of like one child strapped to him, usually keeping an eye on the on one and then one eye on the game. I feel like he does a very good job for uh, for how much he's balancing to then be able to like uh, go on the show and, and, and talk about the kickers. So I feel like y'all split that well. You get the kind of crowd experience. He gets the dad experience. Yeah, it does. It works out very well. You can tell like if you listen to the show, you can hear it because Shadir has like the uptight eagle view. <laughs> I, I'm in the crowd. I'm just like. Yeah, I couldn't tell what happened, but I know it was loud, so I know something good happened. <laughs> <laughs> so you have Matt, who is like the anical person on the show. Of course, yeah, of course. Um, who would you say, like, for people who do end up tuning in maybe to watch the kickers in the playoffs, who are the players that they should uh, keep an eye on? I feel like I can guess a couple of names you're going to say. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, first of all, let's start off with Emiliano Terzaga. Mm-hmm. Emiliano Terzaghi, God. Um, 17 goals this year. I'm glad you, the all, reason why I didn't say it is because I'm never entirely sure how to pronounce it. That's why I said there's some <laughs> I think you're going to say, and then I left it for you to pronounce. There you go. There you yep. go. That works. Yep. Um, uh, 17 goals this year. He's the USL League One all-time leading goal scorer. Um, I mean, the guy is amazing. Like, he is he, – he's a approacher. Like, he just mm. finds the perfect space within the six-yard box of which he can – just tapping these goals in which no one else can get there. Like, if you go back and look at the game against Greenville, it's a deflected cross and that he just somehow darts in front of his person to get a foot on it and scores. Like, most strikers probably would have let that ball go or been like, oh, well, I got a defender and a goalkeeper here. It's going to be safe, so let me not even risk it. But he goes and tries it. Um, another player I would say probably look out for is my pick for MVP this year is Jonathan Bolaños. He has 11 assists this year, um, third-year pro for the Richmond Kickers. The guy has been amazing every year he's been in the league. And he's probably – I would say there's been few players that makes City Stadium, like, stand up on their feet and take a collective, like, awe mm-hmm. when he gets on the ball. You know? Like, every time he touches the ball and there's some space you, – you've seen it before where everyone yep. just says, like, oh, snap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's done it. Um because yeah, I remember He's like hey, I remember like the Jesus Gallardo days where he like he he could do that, but there wasn't always going to be the end product, and it wasn't with a team that was also going to like back it up with performances of their own. So when you see Bolaños yeah. do it, and it's like he can find those pockets, he can find that space. It is it is just something different, I think. And as you said, what eleven assists? I think he's top of, of USL League One, and then Tozagi mm-hmm. top for goal scoring. So some some solid attackers there for sure. Oh yeah, really solid attackers. Um. 
and then probably in the midfield, I would say Ethan Bryant. Uh, we had him last year. We signed him. He was on loan with us last year, and then we signed him because um, he was that good. Um, 21 years old from – he played at San Antonio FC. Um, the kid is a baller in the midfield. Like, I, probably one of the best midfielders in USL League One. And then in defense, you have Jalen Chrysler and Stephen Payne. Um, wonderful defensive partnership on that right side, like the right center back and the right uh, and the right back. And then, of course, the yeah. goalkeeper that we all love dearly uh-huh. is the Karen Fitzgerald with 100 caps so far. And if you had to guess his height off the top of your head, what would you say? Oh, me and Karen are the same height. We were 5'9". There you go. Okay. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's not like, that, that's certainly not short, and that's not really even that short for a goalkeeper. We've had shorter, but he does, he does, I think because he's also got that kind of like smaller frame, he does look very small, and I feel like there is that temptation for teams to just like, ah, oh, put it in the corner, and then he still manages to pull those saves out. Right. He has been the kind of rock for the kickers for a good long while, hasn't he been? He has been, man. Um, I think between him, Luke, and Matt Bulldog. I think those mm. are the three. Well, Matt Bulldog is probably the longest king kicker, but those three have been there from like that 2019 season till now. So it's good man. to see they're still a part of what the team was building towards. But heading into the playoffs, so the kickers are mm-hmm. unbeaten in the last five. They've only won one of those. Any concerns about like the lack of goal scoring, that lack of wins, or do you feel like maybe they've just been kind of coasting knowing where they were? Uh, I think the main concern comes from Richmond is just set-piece defending. Mm-hmm. Overall, we haven't given them that many goals from um, open play. Like Outside of Greenville's goal that happened, a lot of the goals that we've let up in the last five games or so have all came from set pieces. Um, I think there was a stat out there that out of the 34 goals we gave up before this game, 18 of them were from uh, set pieces alone. So that lets you know, like this team, and granted, Akira has the record in saves, I think with like one, like 105. But in terms of that, when you look at it, like a lot of the saves he makes are like saves that's right to his body are low quality shots. The team isn't giving up just open shots on goal uh, or anything like that. Um, so Akira's just racking up saves just because Teams don't know what else to do with it, and they're shooting from 30, 40 yards out at a poor angle with five men in front of them, and the is just catching it in his chest. So that's the positive. I think the thing that kind of hurts the Richmond is just more so just the set pieces are a little bit worrying. Um, if a team makes it a nitty, gr- a grimy game, mm-hmm. that can hurt as well just because of Nail Ethan's build. Um, so teams like Chattanooga, Tormenta, teams that have very physical midfields, um, and the kicker's done well against them, but it's still that kind of cause for concern. It's just about how much space they allow to have the ball and, you know, mm-hmm. just the effectiveness of that. But outside of that, man, I think that's really the only concern I have for Richmond is just set-piece defending. So if they handle the set-piece defending, they get a bye in the first round, they're hosting the winner of South Georgia and Charlotte. Which would you prefer? And again, uh, knowing that elected from Charlotte, I don't want to get you in trouble. But uh, yeah, which of those two teams would you rather play? <laughs> oh man, um, given how we've done this year, I don't think there's a team that I'm necessarily Ooh. afraid of. I think, oh, I, boy. and I, I don't, I don't mean that in a cocky uh-huh. way. I don't mean that in a cocky <laughs> way. I'm say I don't. But I just think about it, like in terms of matchups. Like we've done good against Charlotte, but we haven't played Charlotte since July. And this is a totally different Charlotte team. Where versus. We played Tormenta a little mm. bit more recent on, but they've had better form. So it's like, 
all right, where do we go? But then also we can also get Union Omaha, which has been in four form. Mm. So it, I think it just in terms of match. I think if I had my ultimate pick, I would choose Union Omaha. Um because that would get rid of Chattanooga and I wouldn't have to worry about them. Um, who is a very chaotic team for different reasons on uh, and off the field. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, but, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I, I'm a little more comfortable with Union Omaha or uh, Charlotte, just given how open they are. Like for Charlotte, they're a little bit more open defensively. Granted, they can attack with Fury. Um, I think that's the team that probably has like some of the weirdest score lines in League One. Like they lost seven one, they didn't win a game six two in the same week, which is weird. Um, yes. And where you Omaha, they can't seem to score, but defensively, I think they gave it the lowest of how the goals in the USL League one. So it kind of is either or. All right. For the f- on the fan side of things, how has that been this season mm-hmm. with the wins? I'm assuming it's been more fun to be there, but have you seen a different energy, a different, a different atmosphere? How much like connection has there been with the team, with the players for you or for the, uh, the Red Army this season? Man, it's been totally different. It's been totally different. And for most of the game, I wasn't even really in section. I was kind of just up in the media box looking around, mm-hmm. watching the games or in the concourse walking around. But being in sectional and then you hear the rest of the stadium join in on chance is like something that I never personally heard or saw. Because um, I remember the days, man, where we were lucky to get, what, 3,000 people in mm-hmm. the stadium? Yep. We were lucky if we had 3,000. And but for back-to-back games, having, you know, 5,000 and then 6,000, like, that is amazing, man. It's all kudos to the front office and granted what this team does, like, on the field. Because I remember when we ended season one of River City United, we all had that discussion with me, you, Chanera, and um, Daryl mm-hmm. about, like, what can the kickers do to kind of, like, increase their popularity within the city? Like, do they need to be, like, Ford Madison? Or do they need to be, like, this team or that team? And just to see the work they put in, granted, with the whole pandemic, is mm. starting to pay off, and it's good to see. Yeah, it really is, and it's it's just cool to see because uh, when it was just me and my wife, we would be over like near Section O, usually right above it, usually by the beer trucks, right above it. Uh, with a kid, we tend to be over in in the family section. But you're right when you get the the kind of like the chant reverberating on the stadium when it's the end of the game and you get the you came a long way just to lose. I'm a big fan of that one. I love that song. So like and stand up for Richmond at the end. It is really cool because for so long. I mean, I remember when it was your co-host Matt Myers and like three other guys, one of them banging a drum and that was the Red Army. So it's crazy to see how there has been that sort of growth, but also that it seems like Richmond itself is is way more into it and way more interested. And we we took people to games this year who've never been to a soccer game, certainly never been to a kickers game, and and have been back since because it's just it's a really it's a good atmosphere. It's a good time. Winning definitely helps, but I think it is also just like a just a good community experience, which it hasn't always been. Certainly not when they weren't scoring goals for like a month and a half. Yeah, no, that that would definitely not be fun. Like, hey, you want to come see the guys kick a ball around in the pitch just for the heck of it? Yeah, right. Like, no. <laughs> no. And I think the other thing that I think is is very special about the kickers is is that like the the connection with the fan base and and the kind of relationships y'all have. I saw uh, Doug Doby this weekend and got to hug him, and that was really lovely. Um, but also. Uh, I think you, Elliot, always do a really good job of like remembering people that aren't here with us. Uh, Charlie Slagle, you talked about him, uh, mm-hmm. I know, on Twitter and on the show. Uh, David Bulow as well, you already mentioned him. But 
he was he was such just a wonderful guy and it was always it's the f- only time I've ever had this where we would talk about the games we would break down the tactics we'd put that show out and like a day or two later I'd get a call from him not to criticize me but to be like you got that wrong here's what actually happened and he would like he would talk it out and and for a coach who was in like the kind of hot like not like the pressure situation of the team not playing that well for him to just be candid about that stuff and like, yeah, I got this wrong. I thought this could happen. It didn't work that way. Like that helped me and Daryl with our soccer education so much that he is a person I will forever remember so fondly. Uh, and so it means a lot to me that you you remember him and keep his memory alive. And then certainly Daryl, uh, we still have the banner that you I don't know if you did all of it. I know you helped make it. I know you led the way on that one. So we have the banner y'all made when Daryl uh was still here with us and I know you've kept him like his memory alive too so uh, I just wanted to say thank you for for that sort of um I guess the emotion you bring to it as well oh no problem man I mean that was actually um Richard Hayes and his wife that designed that um Derrick Rose banner but man like never mind that I take it back (laughs) (laughs) but no man like important it's something that I I would say is very unique to Richmond like Richmond is we're granted we're the capital of Virginia, but like we're a very small community where like kind of everyone knows each other mm-hmm. in some way or another, and it's like we do. A, I feel like Richmond does a really good job of like, yo, we're family no matter what. Like at the end of the day, like we love each other, we care for each other, and like when those two people passed away, it was just very hard for the kickers. Mm-hmm. Granted, this is all going on in the middle of a pandemic, but like. Charlie Slagle was the person when he came in 2019. He took the time out of his day to meet the Red Army and like get to know us and um, everything like that. So when he passed away, it was hard. But then I think the Bulow, when he passed away, it was just it took everybody out, man. And just like yeah. you were saying, like how he took the time out of his day to listen to our shows. And me and Shanir started this podcast just because we were like, all right, no one else covered the kickers. And granted, and then like I think two days later, you guys started it. We were like, "Oh man, <laughs> this really sucks." Um, but we kept up with it. But it was so weird to us that like the head coach of the Richard Kickers is listening to our show, and we're like, "Oh, what? Like, no, this isn't real, and like, this isn't cool." And coming to us and talking, and I think also like the way how the Henny Darby, but he was also like a black head coach in mm-hmm. soccer. And at a time, like, we were the, we were two black podcasters covering a soccer team with a black head coach, and it was very unique, so we kind of had that bond between us. And, yeah, he will always be in my memory forever. Well, for what it's worth, like, yeah, we did the, the, the Kickers Weekly uh, show, and we enjoyed it. It, like, kept us watching the games and connected with the team. Uh, and, and that's a, a team that's been in my life since I was, I don't know, 13 I think I still have like like a signed shirt from that entire team in like 96 maybe and I remember like I remember the deep deep when Dero played here briefly and was like the most amazing player I think I've I've ever seen in Richmond until now with the Zaggy. uh but like it's it, it was it was nice to be able to talk about that team that I supported since I was a kid but that genuinely uh part of it was also you know we just got like really busy schedules but I remember Daryl and I having a conversation about like Shanir and Elliot are doing this show that like they're there every single game. They're talking to everybody. They're talking to the players. Like you all were going to do a better show than we could, basically, and like and and had more enthusiasm for it than than I think we did. So I'm really glad that y'all started, and I'm really glad that y'all kept it going because I think it's it's just a, a really great aspect, and it, it's another thing that kind of helps 
uh, create that tapestry of soccer in Richmond that hasn't always existed. And and I hope it continues to do so. So with that in mind, final question for you. <laughs> Tell us more about the, the other shows you're doing. We talked a little bit about River City 93. Tell us about Can I Kick It? Tell us about Walking 90. All right. So Can I Kick It is a show that me and Shanae started during the pandemic. We were both just like, all right, there's no soccer. We don't have nothing to do. Let's start a podcast like billions of other people have started. Um, but that show covers black history within soccer. So we do pretty much is like a version of Soccer 101. Um, and I really feel like we kind of married that. Just where we profile a, a black person within the game of soccer, whether it's a head coach, a player, a moment, a team. And we just talk about the history of the team and the impact that team had. Um, like one of the first episodes we did was about the Marcus Beasley and just the impact that he had on kids such as us and what he meant to us. Um, and you know, just like, what's his overall legacy? And like, if the, I think one of the questions we asked on the show, like if the Marcus Beasley was in the social media, social media era of MLS, like how popular is he? Because I feel like a lot of people remember him on the backside of his career, but they don't really remember the start of his career. Yeah. Um, so that was like one of the yeah that was like one of the first episodes we talked about like how popular would he be? Um, you know we've done those we've done episodes on the 1972 Howard soccer team. Uh, we've done episodes around black soccer supporter culture and gatekeeping. Um, so a lot of our episodes are evergreen. So you can go back and start at episode one or start at episode ten or whatever and go back and just listen to them. And we just do it as an overall fun podcast just you know just to educate people like hey i know espn and fox might not be covering these people but these are some of the pioneers of the sport and why they are so important and then the other show that i do because you know once again i have a pokey box of podcasts at this point um <laughs> <laughs> is uh with kyle carr and Ab, um and chip and brandon we sit down we cover usl league one so it's a bi-weekly show um that we do on youtube um now with the playoffs starting we're doing episodes every week so we should have an episode coming out on Thursday, um, usually around anywhere. We like to say that it's starting soon-ish because uh, we can start anywhere between 9 and 9.30. We got kids. <laughs> we got adult days. We got people in different time zones. It's all weird. But we make it work. Uh, but we covered USL League One, man. And I would say that show is really fun to do because, you know, we're not scripted. We're not um, under like a big media company like you guys are, you know, you're fancy with the athletic, which by the way, correct on that again. Um, <laughs> I think if you, if you saw the state of the office right now, <laughs> there's nothing fancy about what we got going on, but yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. No problem. Um, yeah, we cover USL league one and we do a good job of breaking out each game. Um, and we cover like some of the unique stories that are going on. Like Dakota Bardathan for the Richmond kickers works part-time as a lawyer. Um, like a lot of other people know that or um, how there's players out in Tormenta that takes time out of their day to, you know, go teach at schools and things like that. So like we, we cover USL League One um, and I have a lot of players in USL League One that would come up to us or some of my colleagues and be like, thank you. Like, thank you for taking the time out of your day to like cover this league because really without us, nobody would be talking about USL League One, like no one nationally. Um, you know, so it's a league that has a lot of great players in it. A lot of guys that came from MLS, like Danny Toya, um, you know, overseas, things like that, mm. that they don't get kind of the coverage that they deserve. And we do a good job of covering it. So those are the shows that I do. 
man. That's awesome. Uh, I also <laughs> really appreciate you correcting me on the banner because Richard Hayes is a person, to your point about Richmond being a small city or a small town, like it's he's a person who bounces in and out of my life. Like I see him at kickers games all the time. He took a great photo of, of me and uh, my daughter this past weekend when we were celebrating uh, the, the regular season. But like he, he did the banners. You said he, he used to do like a micro blog about his neighborhood in Richmond. And my dog ran away like 10 years ago at this point. And like his blog is how we ended up getting her back. So it's these weird little connections you make <laughs> along the way that end up being so meaningful. Uh, I'd say yourself and Shanir and Matt definitely included in that. Uh, I look forward to having you and, and Shanir and Matt on the show uh, during the playoffs. Even if it doesn't go well, I still want to have you all uh, on uh, all at once. Maybe maybe we can get everybody in the office to talk about a game or two. But for now, Elliot Barr, thank you again. Uh, I hope the the Charlotte game doesn't cause any uh, concern for you and Electa. It doesn't seem like it will, and that requires them to get there in the first place because they don't have a bye. We do. They don't. Uh, they Elliot don't. Barr, thank you again for taking the time, my friend. No problem, man. And thank you once again, dude. And by the way, like I told you the game, you're doing an amazing job. Thank you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate the love always i elliot is is the bear hug champion though and and when you get the bear hug out of nowhere it makes me happy uh he got my i think he got i think he got a a smile for my daughter which does not always happen with people she meets uh or like for the first time or isn't as comfortable around so she she was into elliot i think she gave you a high five she did she did that's a little homie homie. (laughs) (laughs) all right buddy uh i'll let you go thanks again elliot it's good chatting with you no problem, man. You be easy, all right? All right, buddy. Talk to you later. All right, man.